Mark chapter 1. Uh, a couple of things to, on, on your way there, and then we'll, uh, it's a specific way I want to introduce it. One was, I wasn't, you know, obviously this is an act, so I wasn't scheduled to preach this morning. Uh, Brad was, he's not feeling great, I think he's okay, um, you know, but keep him in your prayer. So, but that, that put me in a spot to look and see what might be something good for us to look at. And, you know, kind of thinking about the Sunday school answer, I thought, Jesus, that, you know, that'd be good to look at. So we're looking at Mark 1. It's early, early in Jesus' ministry. He's done a little bit. He's just getting it kicked off, and we get to see how Mark frames it. The other thing, just again, while you're making your way there, one of the things that I love, it's one of my favorite things on earth, is listening to us sing to the Lord. You know, we, I don't know, like I thought you guys really did do a good job clapping, um, but you know, we have to, we have to be realistic about our, our talent level, you know, we're not the most expressive in ways and different things like that. Having said that, when we sing, I just think it honors the Lord and it does my heart good. It encourages me to hear us sing together because he's worthy and he's our hope. Um, all right, uh, Mark chapter one. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 39. I want to pose this question to begin. Now, it could be, I'm going to say it with me, but it could be anybody. What's the greater power? If I could heal or if I could preach? Okay, what's the greater thing? Got it? Well, like when the power, I could heal, you know, somebody... uh, Born blind or, you know, lame or whatever. If I could heal them with a word or a touch, is that the greater power or preaching truth? Which one? What would, like if you probe into that and you just think, okay, I wonder which one it is. And we may have an instinct on that. What would make you decide? You know, a question like that. Is it um, just based on what you'd see or what might generate a lot of excitement. You know, that's, uh, you see that a lot, create trends that, you know, one church does something, it's kind of a new thing, it sort of generates uh, uh, excitement, and then other churches kind of do the same thing because we kind of like that. But here's the thought. Let's say, you know, the, the question is, what's the greater power? Is it to heal or is it to preach? and you landed on one, would Jesus agree with you? I mean, if you were just to ask Jesus, like, which one? I mean, what do you think is the bigger deal? What do you think he would say? Preaching or healing? What's his opinion? We get to see. Let's look at uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. It says, And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, 
he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And, when, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I, I simply ask that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. That you would work in us because we need it. Uh, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. We need the illumination of your Holy Spirit to see as we ought to see. We just pray because you're a good and gracious God that you would do that for us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you, Mark is the shortest gospel. Uh, he tends to be action-oriented. One of the big words that shows up repeatedly in the gospel of Mark is immediately. Because he goes from one action to the next action to the next action. And one of the ways he does that is he says, immediately from here, this. And then immediately this, and so on. And you can see that a couple of times at the beginning of this passage. And so what's in view early in Jesus' ministry is what, you know, what his commitments are. And his life and his ministry and that, you know, what kind of actions does he take. And uh, that's how it's laid out. We get to see Jesus in action, in action, early in his ministry. And what we see are three things. What is it that, if you just look at what Jesus does, if you're going to follow him around and say, what does it look like for the Son of God, um, you know, uh, God the Son become man, to come and make himself known and to to do life and ministry, what does it look like? What what is he going to commit himself to? And Mark shows us early on uh, these three things. And the first is the thing that really pops, we might say, in verses 29 through 34. It's these demonstrations of power. Okay, I want to read that again. I want to read it section by section as we go, but you can, you can see this. It says in verse 29, and immediately he left the synagogue. What, what Mark is doing is he's transitioning from a, an episode or a scene there in a synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus is, uh, where he had cast out a demon. Some people had seen it, and they were, you know, they were obviously blown away by this demonstration of power. And so he'd been in the synagogue, and it says, and he left there. Where did he go? He entered the house of Simon and Andrew, their brothers, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So you see this simple thing uh, where... Uh, you know, Simon's mother-in-law, you know, I know some of you have conflicting, you know, conflicted thoughts about your mother-in-law, but Simon must be a pretty good dude because he wants her to be healed. And so anyway, Jesus uh, goes to her and he raises her up and the, the fever leaves her. And then it transitions, verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So you almost have these two scenes early on in these demonstrations of power, and so that's actually important as you go throughout Mark um, because there's a timing here that previews a tension that shows up. 
right? He leaves the synagogue. It's still the Sabbath. He goes into this home. It's a private setting, and he does healing there. But people don't see it. It's not public. And then at sundown, verse 32, Sabbath ends. And this is public. And people start bringing their people uh, to Jesus to be healed. And the reason that there's this kind of tension that you see playing out there is because it's the Sabbath and all of that, their teaching was, this was rooted in tradition, not so much in Scripture, was on the Sabbath you weren't permitted to do any work. And healing, again by tradition, was deemed work. And so healing is a, as a, on the Sabbath would be a violation, you know, penalty of death type stuff. And so there's a subtle avoidance here. Jesus is going to take that head on in the future, but you can see this kind of preview. There's a private setting. He does a healing on the Sabbath. The sun goes down, Sabbath ends, and publicly uh, Jesus does this, you know, this healing and all of that, and there's this big demonstration of power. We should also early on clarify something that's been misconstrued. Not so much by most folks, but either by uh, critics of Scripture or by, uh, you know, people who claim to be Christians who are misogynists, okay? Did, did you notice when uh, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, it says she got up and she served them. And what some people have said, no lie, is they've said, well, you're right. I mean, she's a woman, and so she got up and she served everybody. She's a woman, and that's her place. And I want to say this, but hang in there with me. It is her place. She should have gotten up and served all right, but I want you to, she's in good company, because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 13, the angels minister to Jesus, the angels in heaven, meaning they served him, and that's their place, and Jesus in, John, uh, in Mark 10, 45 says he came not to be served, but to serve, that's his place, so is it her place to serve? Yes, along with the angels in heaven, that's their place to serve. Along with Jesus, he considers it his place to serve. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus, where there's a place to serve, that's a good place for you to serve, right? That we're to have that kind of attitude. The idea, we see this all through Scripture, that what Jesus does is he says, I left everything. I left the glory of heaven to submit myself and identify with you, and I'm calling you to follow in my steps, so that people can see, you know, this kind of glory in my humility so that they can see the, the grace of the gospel through what we do. And he leads in that. He came to serve. And so she's just, she's just doing what all of us who follow Jesus should do, is to not just do the actions of service, but have a mindset and a heart for service. There are a lot of people who do things, but, you know, the, the heart isn't consistent with service, you might say. All right, but... More to kind of what's really uh, centrally in view in, in Mark's gospel here is that you see these demonstrations of power, right? Kind of left and right. I mean, he sort of summarizes them. You know, there's all the whole city and all these people, and there's like various healings and various demons and all of that stuff. You get to see what healing and deliverance uh, reveal about Jesus. What do you think it says about him? That... Basically, everybody lines up, and he heals, and he casts out demons, and that sort of thing. What do you think it says about it? Let me give you three thoughts. One is this, is that Jesus loves people, and when they're hurting, 
he feels compassion, and he does something about it. So you get to see that. You get to see him be moved and, and want to do something where people are hurting. You also get to see where there's healing, that uh, there's a demonstration of power. What does it demonstrate? Jesus actually has the power to reverse the effects of sin. It says something about it, right? And then where he exercises demons, where he casts out demons, uh, that tells you that he has authority over Satan uh, to, to tell him what to do uh, when Satan has a desire to run things, and, and he doesn't have that ultimate authority. So what you see with Jesus is a heart for people, right, and, and the power uh, to reverse the effects of sin and the, the authority over Satan who desires to run things but cannot. Anyway, you, you look at this first part, you see all these demonstrations of power. Keep in mind, this is the whole city. And the, they're, they're flooding to Simon's house. And so word gets out and all of that stuff, and conventional wisdom says this. Hey, it looks like this is the game plan, right? This is the great response. It's the whole city and all these uh, healings and so on. So we've got a, a great thing started here. That looks like maybe that's the whole goal. And we get to see and then it transitions. That's the first action, these demonstrations of power. The second is in verse 35. And it says this. It says, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So sometimes people read the Bible and they go like, Well, Jesus got up early, so you should get up early. Like, that's more spiritual, right? Or Jesus went to a desolate place, so I need to go somewhere where it's ugly and dry. You know, we're talking Middle Ages here. I need to go somewhere where it's ugly and dry, and, you know, God will speak to me there. That's, that's nonsense. What, what we really see in Jesus is, right, it's, it's been people left and right and people who are troubled. And then what does he do? The next action he takes is prayer. A couple of quick things here. One is his commitment to it. It's been a long, long day. It's exhausting, right? If you, just, if you look at the flow of it, at sundown, when do they come? It's the end of the day, right? They brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. It's not like a couple of dudes brought somebody they know. And then in verse 33, it says the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he heals and casts out demons and so on, right? I mean, it's been a busy night and then it says this in verse 35, rising very early, it's still dark. It's been a short night for him. And when it comes to sleep, everyone else is sleeping it off. And Jesus does something else. He gets away. There, sometimes you can't hear the Father in a crowd. Sometimes you feel you go through these seasons where you feel really dry. And I'm just going to tell you, Sometimes what you've got to do is you've got to stop hearing everybody else talk, stop hearing, you know, all those voices in your head, and you've got to peel away, and you're going to have to pray, and sometimes that takes time. Jesus does that. You also see, interestingly enough, we don't think about this enough, his need for it. It's as though he says, look, it's, it's been a long night, and we might go, I need to get a good night's sleep. We need that. But what Jesus does is as much as he needs a good night's sleep, he needs prayer more. God the Son is also very man. And so he, as, you know, he's taken on our place and our plight. And so what he needs is the kind of thing that you need. 
His experience is like yours. So he needs to refuel. He needs to reconnect uh, with the Father in the same way you do. And he needs direction. And he wants fellowship. And he needs to be strengthened. And probably more than all the human affirmation, remember, the whole city's there giving that to him. Hey, Jesus, you're great. Look at what you've done. And what is Jesus committed to do? He wants to hear his Father's well done. He knows very well the kind of uh, uh, the value that a crowd's affirmation has. I mean, you've probably experienced that, right? I mean, like I'm a semi-public figure, not a real public figure, but a semi-public figure. And there are people who would go like in one season of their life, you know, they, what they see is a halo over my head because I'm a pastor. It's not, not true. I'm, I'm a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else. I sin just like everybody else. And the only way I get to heaven is not by preaching. I get to heaven just because Jesus laid down his life for me and died for me and his his blood washed my sin away, and I put my trust in him, just like everybody else. Those, some, those same people who go like, oh, this, you're the most extraordinary man of God, you know, in another season, uh, you know, their opinion radically changes. I, there are places in the gospel where it says Jesus sizes up the crowd, and he doesn't give himself away to them because he knows what's in the heart of man. Jesus knows this early on. He's, yeah, he's a popular figure. And what does he want more than that? He wants to make sure that first things are first and that his relationship with the Father is good. You know, up to date. How's yours? Um, so, so it's a pretty big contrast, right? You see these demonstrations of power to the whole city. And then he goes, verse 35, to a desolate place. Nobody else is there to see just how spiritual he is and all that stuff. And it's just him and the Father. And so he prays. That's the second action. And the third action is this. Uh, it's preaching. Verses 36 through 39. Now, it starts this way. In verses 36 and 37, um, it's kind of funny. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Now, it's easy to read older uh, texts and just hear the facts. There's more than just the facts. They're looking for him going, What's going on? So what it starts with is a challenge to Jesus' priorities. It's as though they search for him, they finally find him, and they're like, hey, you can pray anytime. Right? You know, pray without ceasing. Uh, let's do this thing on the go. Don't you get it? It's a weird time to pull away if you can't stand a little success. If you didn't see last night, the whole city is animated. They were lined up. You're kind of a big deal. Everyone is looking for you. Point of application. You see this in the Gospels. It's often the disciples' temptation to mold Jesus into their image instead of following him and being molded into his. I don't know if you've noticed this. That's not a first century problem. It's not limited to that. It you know, kind of broadens out. It seems to be uh, part of our experience. Now listen, if you forget, it's very important to do this. If you forget who the master is, it's going to jack up your relationship with Jesus because he's pretty sure he is, all right, since, you know, he died and rose again and he's Lord of Lords and all that stuff, right? And so if you ever get confused about who the master is, it's Jesus. And so in terms of who should be molded into whose image, it's always you into his. And you can read the whole New Testament and it talks about this, right, that we'd be, you know, uh, transformed into the image of his son, 
which is like the reforming of the image of God in you that was marred in the fall. And so they, they have this temptation. They, they get it backwards sometimes. It, it's like Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. Everything's going so well. Um, if you notice, it says that they searched for him, and then they said, everyone is looking for you. If you, if you read the whole gospel of Mark, that's never a positive in Mark. So if, here's why. Because guess who looks for Jesus? His enemies look for him. His enemies look for a way to destroy him. And here, his disciples in the crowd, the, their agenda is off. It's the wrong kind of searching. When they're looking for him, what are they looking for? What do you think? I mean, what have you been doing? Here the followers are trying to lead and their aim runs counter to the mission. And so when Simon says to him, Jesus, listen, everybody's looking for you. Where are you? This is a rebuke, right? Translation, they're waiting. What are you doing? I mean, you could pray anytime, you know, catch up on your prayer life, right? I'm I'm all for that. But why don't you do that when business isn't open? You got to get back there. You got, we've got it going on now. You got to sustain this. The people are expecting this. So that's how it starts. It starts with the challenge to Jesus' priority because he breaks away and he prays. As though, you know, that's, that's no big deal. And it ends with Jesus pointing out what's really important to him where he basically says, let's move on because I've got to preach. Look at verses 38 and 39. Like everybody's waiting. We've got the crowd there, Right? Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. He doesn't say that I may heal there also, that I may preach there. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, what he tells them, you're not thinking big enough. Let's just see the problem. Uh, the, The big thing you see It's actually a small thing. And the little thing you hear is actually a big thing. It's all upside down. This big thing you see, this healing, is actually just a little token of something great. And uh, the little thing you hear is actually a word, an invitation to something great. The little thing is the big thing. And the big thing is the little thing. There are other towns. I have to preach. They need to hear it too. That's why I came out. He's saying, that's why I unveiled. That's that's why this is all there uh, because... That's the priority. I'm here to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king is in your midst. Now, just as an aside so that we can follow the example of Jesus here where it's appropriate, how is it that Jesus doesn't get off track? I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You know, whenever you're a teenager, they call it peer pressure. Everybody else's school is doing it. Your mom says, if everybody else's school jumped off of, you know, a cliff, would you do it too? And the teenager says, no, but what they really mean is yes, right, you know? And that, that doesn't leave you when you're a teenager because what the crowd's expectations are appeals to all of us, and it can be really distracting. Jesus doesn't get distracted. How is it that that's even possible? Well, he seems to know his calling, and he's a person of prayer. Uh, Even when it gets chaotic, even when it's, you know, it's like where we might go, I'm too busy to pray, seems to be precisely when he prays. Uh, He's willing to say no to something good or even popular in order uh, to stay with what's more important. 
And you may have to say no. Everybody has, you know, and by comparison or on some level, people back in Capernaum with expectations. You got people in your life who have expectations about who you ought to be and, and what you should do. Sometimes they're right, but not always. Sometimes what they want, even if it's a good thing, is less than what the Lord is calling you to. So note this. Jesus looks at everything through a kingdom perspective uh, because that's the most important thing. That's, that's what shapes his goals, it seems to be. It's what helps him say no, and that's what keeps him going back again and again to the Father. So that's, the, that's you know, early in his ministry, it looks like what Mark is doing in his gospel is saying, look at this. Look at what, when Jesus starts off, the actions that he takes. You see demonstrations of power, prayer, and a commitment to preach, preaching. Now, what are we to make of a passage like this that is really just designed to introduce us to Jesus? Well, I want to ask and answer uh, two questions. Uh, I'm actually going to do three. There's a bonus one that's not in your handout. But what you find, the whole passage is counterintuitive. It's like this. Um, what you expect to happen doesn't happen. And what you think is important isn't as important as you think it is. It's all counterintuitive. So here are, the, here are the three questions. And like I said, there are two in your handout. The first one is this. Why wait to be known? Why does Jesus hold back on that? You know, uh, for example, you see it in verse 28, the, the passage before this one. He does this uh, exorcism, this, you know, casting out an unclean spirit in the synagogue. And in verse 28, it says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? That's what you would think, is that, hey, ultimately, Jesus, we're supposed to know that you're the Christ, and you want them to believe that you're the Son of God, so why don't we just go ahead and get the word out? Sooner, the better, right? You know, tell them early, tell them often. And yeah, in this very passage, verse 34, it says, when the demons started to speak, Jesus silenced them. Did you see why in verse 34? It says, because they knew him. They could peg him in a lineup, right? They, they could see him there and go, that's him. That's, he's the son of God. And he didn't want that. Lest we think this is restricted to just demons, it happens with, with uh, people as well, that he goes someplace and somebody is healed and he says, don't tell anybody. Of course, you know, they disobey, so they tell people, but he tells them not to tell. Um, why wait? Like I said, we would think, well, you are the Christ, why not let him know? I tell you what I think it is, and I think we've got really good reason to go on. Uh, on this basis, because now we're supposed to tell. We wait because there's more to show. You, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it says, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. And you get to the end, tell. Tell everyone. There's more to show. There's more than just a demonstration of power that needs to be seen. Because none of it will be fully understood until he's done what he came to do. None of it will be fully understood without the cross. That's where it comes into focus. It won't come into focus until then. Power generalized isn't enough. Just the ability to calm a sea or to cast out a demon or heal a man born blind and so on and so on. That's not enough. Power generalized isn't enough. Power to save, that's the defining work. And it's not until the cross that you can fully see what it means that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. So he's waiting until that cross work to say, you see it? 
the innocent one bearing the sins of many, the whole world, and defeating death. Now go tell and invite people in. Here's the bonus question, question in between. If preaching is the big priority, why does Jesus continue to heal and stuff? Right? Uh, you know, he does these power healings and casting out demons. Because in verse 39, that's exactly what happens. He says in verse 38, listen, I came to preach. Let's go to the next town. And he goes to the next town and he preaches, but he also casts out demons. Why does he do that? Well, I think for one thing, we said it earlier, Jesus cares about people. And if you've got a demon in your life, that's less than fun. All right? That's an evil oppression in your life. But also... The sign offers an indication of who he is and what he's done. In other words, it complements the message. Don't you, say he's, don't you see, he's saying something when he preaches. And when he does a demonstration of power like this, he's saying the same thing. What is he saying when he preaches? I am the one. Believe in me. And uh, what's the demonstration of power? It authenticates it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an authentication of his claim that Jesus is the one. All right, let's get kind of to the thesis here. Why, why is healing less important than preaching? Because it doesn't look that way. It looks like healing is the big deal. You know, on balance, people don't line up to hear Jesus preach. I mean, I know there are passages in the New Testament where they do, or in the Gospels where they do, but it seems like whenever they do that, there's an expectation, for example, to be fed, you know, to be shown something. Well, there's, a, there's a lot of that to where it seems like they're following Jesus just to see the show. Um, that seems to be what gets people excited. Why is healing a less than preaching? Well, because healing can't possibly go far enough. That's, it's got limitations. While it points to the power to do something bigger, that's why it's there. There's something bigger. Here's a, here's a down payment on something bigger. Healing is always temporary, right? You go through all the examples in Scripture, but just think about it. Lazarus, awesome miracle, raised from the dead. Lazarus is dead. Healing, temporary. Man born blind. You know, Jesus does his thing, man born blind sees, the man born blind doesn't see physically right now, right? He died. All that's temporary. Preaching goes to the fundamental problem. The gospel is destiny language. The gospel is destiny language because it bears destiny power. Healing can only point to that. The good news actually is transformative. I'll give you a little offer of proof. Let's just say you're one of those folks... And you say, listen, you know, on balance, great, but, you know, talk is cheap. And if given the choice, my, my body's breaking down or my body disappoints me, I would rather be healed than hear the gospel. Let's say that's you, okay? Maybe it's not, but let's just say it is. Like, I don't get it. I'd, I'd rather get this big demonstration of power than the gospel. Jesus, the one who healed, this is what he said. You're way better off to go into heaven with a limp, maimed, missing uh, hand, not being able to speak, having your eyes gouged out. You're way better off going into heaven maimed than you are into hell whole. That's the guy who preached, or that's the guy who healed. That's what he said. He's, he's given a priority to like what you know and who you know. And Paul, for example, says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power to save. 
And say it's healing that's the power to save. And here's why. Because that those healings are actually point you to authenticate the gospel, the good news. Uh, the gospel ultimately answers the problem of the body and the problem of the soul, namely sin. To put it another way, you need the trauma of preaching. Um, the way we're described spiritually is that we're like spiritually asleep, spiritually dead. And you need the trauma of preaching because what you can see limits you to the reality of time. So if you just go, well, m most people do this, you just kind of, your life is completely governed by what you see and how you feel. It's an awful way to live, by the way, but most people do that, like kind of what you see and what you feel. And if that's what you go by, um, your sight is, is limited by the reality of time. It is a reality, but it's a limited reality. And what the trauma of preaching does, where it provokes you, right? It troubles your soul. Um, it, it raises your reality to the reality of eternity so that you can see what's actually there that's more than just what your eyes can do. So that's Jesus, right? Um, application, a couple of things. One is this, uh, since preaching is vital to you, and I know it's the problem with talking about preaching as a preacher, it seems kind of self-serving, but it doesn't matter if it's me or if it's anybody, whoever it is, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, one of the problems with preaching is you always get an imperfect preacher, right? It's kind of a weird thing. It's like, I'm commanded to do this. It's in the Bible. If it's not me, if I get struck down by a train tomorrow and you know, somebody else steps in, that person is supposed to preach and preach God's word, and that preacher is going to be an imperfect preacher. And that's true. I mean, I wish, I wish I could deny it. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm over all that sin stuff. Like, I'm completely wise and always have pure motives and stuff like that. I don't. Sinner saved by grace, just like you. And yet, preaching is so vital, even through imperfect means. And, and in large part because not imperfect, right? Um, so assume discernment, because there's false teaching out there, but assume that what you're getting is good, solid preaching, even if it's from an imperfect source. Since preaching is so vital to you, what is at least one thing that you should do to be more receptive to it? I mean, it could be lots of things. It might be something really simple for you. Maybe Saturday night is your stay-up late night. And maybe you ought to change that. Or maybe you ought to get here a little earlier. I mean, Billings is an on-time to late, uh, you know, culture and that sort of thing. But uh, maybe you should pray to adjust your heart. Do you ever do that? You ever just come and you're just going through the motions? You walk through the door and it's like, you know, make me happy. Sing better, lead better, you know, be funnier, be more probing, you know, evoke something in my spirit. I just don't have the power to do that. It's, it's actually not even my job. So my job is to open God's word and just shoot it straight and to love you and pray for you. But do you come ready? Is there something that is just kind of in your routine that would be really good for you to adjust so that you're more receptive to it? Because there's something like Jesus that you should do to reorient your priorities. Resolving a bitter attitude, forgiving, you know, preparing with the passage during the week or whatnot. 
The other thing I want to do is I want to close with the gospel. I want you to hear the gospel so that Christ can change your life. I want you to get ultimate healing through the trauma of preaching. You've heard it before, but listen again. There is a God. He created everything. He's good. He made you. And what the Bible says about you is that you're made in God's image, which is a great thing. It's why that noble side of you, that side of you that longs for something more, as a sense of the sacred, that's true about you. It's right there in the design. The Bible also says that you've fallen impossibly into sin. And you can't self-save. You, it's, it's not a jam you can get yourself out of. And what God did, because he's so good, is that he sent Jesus. Jesus identified with us, and he lived a life we could never live. He's perfectly righteous, and, he, and he, he was obedient all the way to the cross to bear uh, your sin. Even though he didn't deserve it, you deserved it. He stood in your place, paid the price for you so that you didn't have to pay it. And he bore all your sin and he overcame death. And what the, what the Bible says is, if you're going to go to heaven, if you're going to know God, you can't do that by some kind of performance, right? You know, there's not a job in the church that like makes it to where you can automatically be close to God you know, life group leader or treasurer or a deacon or whatever. You just don't get that. If you're going to know God, it's going to be because somebody, Jesus, spilled his blood for you. If you're going to know God, if you're going to be enter into God's kingdom, you're going to do that not on your merit but on Jesus' merit. You're just going to do it by grace. And so the Bible says gospel means good news. And here's God's good news. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done to save you. So repent, turn away from your self-reliance, and put your hope in Jesus. And you'll be forgiven and made alive together with him forever. I mean, he's that good. Um, you know, when you think about it on balance, we would say, if you're a believer walking with Jesus for a while, what are your commitments to receive God's word and to know the Lord? Don't be a commitment slob, right? You know, if you commit yourself, if this is important, Put your heart into it. Be, be ready to receive God's word. Be ready to sing with joy what's true. If you don't know Jesus, the great news is this. You know, if you have this sense like, I just don't deserve it. Right. You don't. You know, if you're like, I'm an awful person. Right. You're an awful person. Get in line. I mean, you know, if Jesus has to die for you, it's, you know, in that sense, it's not a compliment. Hey, you know, you're so great. Mm -mm. He's so gracious. And that's the invitation, that you can know God, not because you're so great or because you're so intrinsically worthy, but because Jesus is. And he's done everything necessary for you to know God so that, and this is how perfect it is, in spite of everything that you've done, and I don't know what you've done, I know what I've done. And I know I have no shot. And in spite of everything that I've done, the Father looks at me and he just sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's how great a Savior he is. And so we just say, put your hope in him because all that's been born. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for Jesus. Get to see this model of somebody who loves people and keeps his priorities and stays on mission um, so that we can be saved, so that, that uh, we can understand what it means that he's the Christ, the one who came to save. 
that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we just, for those of us who follow Jesus and have our trust in him, we pray that we live this reality out all the time when we need your spirit to do that. And for our friends here who haven't yet believed, we just pray you turn the light on and draw on because nobody's like Jesus. And nobody can save except Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.